0: He tēnei nā te reo irirangi o the
2: entire floor had sort of erupted, and bunks were wrecked, and so on. And Fernando had been, had a cabin just right close to that, and uh, presumably got uh, trapped uh, once the the second bomb went off, and the water would have cascaded down through the um, the stairs and and caught him there.
0: Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, and this is Crimes NZ. In this episode, we're looking into the 1985 bombing of the Rainbow Warrior. It's described as the first act of terrorism against New Zealand, and Greenpeace photographer Fernando Pereira was killed in the blast. David Roby is a professor of journalism at AUT and wrote a book about the final voyage of the Rainbow Warrior, a voyage he took part in.
2: Well, it was the last voyage of the original Rainbow Warrior. Of course, the two two others uh, followed, uh, Jesse, but um, the reason why I was on board, because I wasn't actually a member of Greenpeace or anything like that, although I've uh, been an environmental journalist for many years, and at the time I was uh, very involved in reporting environmental issues around the Pacific. And uh, in those days, Greenpeace was very small. I mean, it was a very fledgling organisation. They had a little office in Nagel House uh, downtown um, Auckland, and uh, Elaine Shaw was the the, uh, coordinator and she was very worried that uh, this was going to be quite a threshold voyage um, it was probably the first uh, campaign by Greenpeace that was humanitarian as not not only environmental. Um, to rescue, basically, people who have been suffering from uh, uh, nuclear radiation on on Rongelap Atoll in the Marshall Islands. And um, this had been planned for many months, in fact, a couple of years or so, and Elaine was very keen to get uh, some coverage in the media in the Southern Hemisphere. And there were about six journalists that uh, went on board, but I ended up being the only one from the Southern Hemisphere. It was a big commitment at the time because uh, I was a freelance journalist and it meant joining the Rainbow Warrior in Hawaii uh, and uh, being on board for 10 to 11 weeks uh, right up until the time of the bombing.
0: Can you describe the ship?
2: Well, it was um, quite different from uh, the sort of uh, ultra modern um, environmental ship they have now as Greenpeace Three. It was an old uh, fishing trawler, about forty-seven meters or so. Um, The original name was uh, Sir William Hardy. It was built um, in uh, Scotland in Aberdeen, and after a life as a uh, fishing trawler, it became a research ship, and then it was sort of uh, up on the market. And David McTaggart, who was then uh, head of uh, Greenpeace, bought it for about £40,000, and it was refitted um, over in the uh, UK. But before this voyage that I joined, well, of course, it had been refitted in Jacksonville in the US as a uh, combined uh, motor-driven ship and, and a sailing ship. So it was quite innovative at the time.
0: Comfortable to stay on. well
2: well, I mean, I found it uh, well to, to be on board for all that time. I actually really enjoyed it, and it certainly was compared with the comforts uh, today and Greenpeace uh, you know on Rainbow wire three uh, it uh, it was pretty rough but <laughs> but no no, it was actually it, was, it had a lot of character and um, it was a lovely ship in many many respects and um, I guess all of us on board uh, grew to love it incredibly.
0: It was the US government testing around the Marshall Islands, 67 nuclear tests on several small islands, several atolls, but then... Of course, the French were doing similar sorts of testing, and, and, and were they the next target for Greenpeace?
2: Yes. Well, this was uh, supposed to be a, like a, a combined uh, uh, mission. First of all, uh, rescue the people in uh, Rongelap, and then uh, carry on the next stage of the uh, campaign, going to Mororoa and uh, taking on the French uh, with the nuclear testing there. Of course, the uh, French, over a period of time, until they actually sort of stopped testing, in um, 1996, uh, they carried out about 193 tests uh, in the Pacific, and 43 of those were atmospheric. So for our part of the world, probably it was even greater affront front to, um, to the region. I wasn't actually planning to go on board that next stage. I mean, once, because I was a freelancer, I'd <laughs> earn, earn a biscuit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I planned to sort of uh, leave the ship um, in, um, in Auckland anyway when we arrived back.
0: So it was stopping um, off in Auckland on the way to Mururoa. That's right, that's mm.
2: right, and refitting and, uh, and preparing for that next stage of the, uh, of the protest.
0: And to set the scene, um, younger listeners might not realise that there was already a bit of tension between New Zealand and France uh, in the early 80s. This is our Prime Minister at the time, David Lange, talking about France using the South Pacific, our backyard, to test their weapons. There are
1: really three questions. Will the French persist? in a nuclear testing programme. Secondly, if they do, will they do it near us and keep the united opposition of the Pacific against them? Or will they go and do it in their own backyard? Now, I don't want them to test at all. If they must, I don't want them in the Pacific. From the report from Muraroa, there are geological structures in France which have the strength or greater than the strength of Murura. It is not a question of geological structure. It is a question of arrogance. It is a question of national pride, and it is simply a whole philosophy built up where they have chosen for donkey's years to inflict their weapons testing on other people for their defence, and that's unacceptable. But I think we need now to go over to uh, Europe and in France Uh, start to say something to the socialists who made the promises before election and back down on them afterwards, and tell them what we think of that, point out to the French people that they can now look forward to having these tests which they say are so vital in their own uh, home, and then we'll see whether they think the whole deterrent programme for France is so vital.
0: Hmm. Actually, the way he's talking there, I wonder if he's still leader of the opposition... 1984. That would have been long. I don't know if it was pre or post-election, but anyway.
2: Well, the word I pick up there is uh, arrogance. And, uh, I mean, that's been the history right through uh, for, for all those years that uh, the nuclear testing was carried on. We have to remember that uh, France got kicked out of nuclear testing in the Sahara Desert prior to the Pacific uh, with the War of Independence um, in Algeria. Uh, it became untenable for uh, France to carry on its nuclear test. I think they carried out about 17 there in the desert. Um, So they had to hunt around for another place. There was never any debate, uh, serious debate or anything like that about any question if it would be in its own backyard, uh, even as uh, David uh, Longhead said at the time, you know that geologically there's no reason why not. No, no, politically it was uh, very expedient to have it as far away as possible from France. And um, by and large in the debate in in France, it was always seen as part of the force de frappe, the nuclear deterrent that uh, France needed as an independent uh, uh, weapon sort of thing.
0: So take us then the following year to July 10th, 1985. What happened that night?
2: Well, that was the bombing um, on board the Rainbow Warrior um, and caught the country totally in shock and also the the crew of the Rainbow Warrior um, and Greenpeace generally. Initially, it was sort of the big questions were asked. Well, who who could have been responsible for this atrocious, uh, outrageous uh, uh, attack uh, on a peaceful environmental ship uh, sitting here in um, Auckland? Can, and, can you
0: just take us to the night, by the way, because I think there was a birthday party or something. That's
2: right, board. Steve Sawyer. Um, basically, you had Peter Wilcox was the skipper on board, and with Greenpeace campaigns, they always had a campaign coordinator as well, who basically organised uh, all their strategies and so on, collectively, of course. So Steve Soy was the campaign coordinator for the Marshall Islands and um, and then also going, going on to Mororoa. So it was his birthday that night. Um, that was three nights uh, or three days after we arrived uh, back in Auckland. So that's, uh, that's when the attack happened. And I think it's an incredible miracle that uh, only one person lost his life, uh, Fernando Barrera. So you were, on, you were at the party? I, I, wasn't, I, wasn't actually, uh, I wasn't there that night, because I had already been on board for ten and a half weeks, mm. and I was very keen to sort of be on shore for, for, for a yeah. while. So I was home that night. I'd tried to organise a um, scout trip uh, for my uh, eight-year-old son and four-year-old earlier on that evening, and that n- never eventuated, it was probably a good thing anyway that that hadn't happened. But uh, no, so I wasn't actually on board. I joined uh, the crew early in the morning when Me I, I um, heard, uh, heard what had happened.
0: So there were a few on board when the first explosion took place?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, everybody scurried to try and uh, get off, including Fernando, because Fernando went back on board uh, to grab his camera and gear and so on. And, and I just think it's staggering. I mean, because a lot of the media coverage at the time focused on, well, when, you know, as, as the story un- unveiled further on down the track, you know, the idea was that, well, it was never meant to be any loss of life. It was an outrageous act of terrorism. The bombers knew very well. Uh, because they were getting information all the time that there was a uh, large crowd on board um, the Rainbow Borrow that night and uh, the chances were very high that there could have been a um, loss of life. I think it's quite extraordinary that, uh, for example, Bunny and uh, Henker, two of their crew, crew members, uh, uh, were in a cabin immediately above the engine room where the first bomb went off. Um, the second was um, close to the propeller shaft to make sure you know, that the ship would never, would never really sail again, mm. sort of thing. Um, by
0: the way, where is Marston Wolf?
2: Oh, just um, just down here off um, Auckland, um, you know, right uh, in the the harbour. There, it's a real central it's, city. Yeah, yeah, right in the, right in the. the but, yeah, yeah, exactly. Further over from from there, I had a cabin uh, on board uh, down down below, uh, just near Fernandez, um, and it's a very narrow um, stairway down to the aft cabins. And um, I had the opportunity of going back on board the Rainbow Warrior uh, some weeks later when it was refloated, uh, taken over to Devonport Naval Base. Mm. Um, so I was able to see um, all the damage uh, that had been created, and I was quite staggered. My own cabin, you know, the, the, the entire floor had sort of erupted, and <laughs> bunks were <laughs> wrecked and so on. And Fernando had been, had a cabin just right close to that, and uh, presumably got um, trapped uh, once the the second bomb went off, and the water would have cascaded down through the um, the stairs and, and caught him there.
0: Let's go to the morning after the bombing then, and this is how it was covered here on RNZ on Morning Report.
1: Explosions rang out from the 40-metre ship at about midnight, and the crew scrambled to get off the vessel to safety as she began going
0: under. But one crew member was caught below decks, and police recovered his body early this morning. Stunned Greenpeace members say the vessel was priceless. But right now, they're still mourning for their dead colleague who went down with the vessel. All we know is that between the first and second explosions, he went back aboard presumably to retrieve his camera gear and he never made it out
1: rainbow warrior didn't go to a warrior's death she sank in her sleep just after midnight tied up at an auckland wharf it's a tragic end to what was probably the world's number one peace vessel small as she was what blew her up and killed a man of peace say half of the world leaders of greenpeace are in new zealand at the moment
0: so the one big question mark in your mind at the moment is is what happened on the boat last night was it an accident or was it not an accident We know know now, of course, that it wasn't an accident. I'm talking to David Robey with memories of 1985 when the Rainbow Warrior, the Greenpeace ship, was bombed here in New Zealand. What did we find out about how the French planned and executed this mission?
2: Well, uh, basically, it's a campaign called Operation uh, Satanique. It was um, basically 13 uh, secret operatives agents uh, were operating uh, from the DGSE in the country at the time. Two teams, uh, one that brought the uh, explosives, the other one that was uh, going to plant the explosives, and there was a third team for fail safe in uh, case um, anything went wrong with the first two teams. Uh, then there was a commanding officer who kept a, an overview of the whole uh, whole operation. And um, I I think there was an element of arrogance. It's the same as the arrogance about the nuclear testing itself. There was extraordinary arrogance about, um, well, taking on an operation like this in a um, a peaceful country. Mm. Um, We were certainly an ally of France at the time, you know, and basically assuming that they could get away with this uh, outrageous act.
0: And eventually, well... How
2: many agents were involved in total? About 13, and three spread over the three groups. And two were caught. Two were caught. With a little bit more luck, they might have actually got more. But uh, you have to sort of um, see it in the context of the period, of the time. You know, New Zealand was unpopular with the uh, major uh, nuclear powers and, and so on. And there was certainly no sympathy for New Zealand's uh, position about nuclear testing. So there wasn't really any kind of cooperation, um, even from our neighbour as Australia, because had we um, had more cooperation uh, from Australian authorities mm. and so on, we probably would have got um, agents that were on board uh, the Uvia, you uh, yacht that carried the explosives and they were in Norfolk Island. But it was extraordinary that we got two anyway. Mafaa and Pira, they were the two that uh, were caught.
0: Yeah, that might answer the question about why we weren't warned about the bombing, why we didn't get any message or clue that it was going to happen.
2: Well, I, I think that's uh, – personally, that's something I've really wondered about for all those years, you know, with our uh, so-called um, close liaisons that we have for intelligence uh, and now, of course, uh, New Zealand being part of Five Eyes and that sort of thing. We did not benefit uh, in any way from intelligence because really the police were operating from the base of uh, never an experience with terrorism of this scale, uh, certainly state terrorism. And uh, I'm sure the, the um, SAS and our intelligence uh, networks and so on had a lot more information. And uh, that uh, certain amount leaked out at the time that they were, had more information than uh, probably the, the police could possibly have at that time. So I think we're very much let down um, by our uh, intelligence community.
0: Let's go to the arrest then of Dominic Prieur and Elaine Marfar. Here's Ray Wilmot from what was known at the time as 1ZB
1: at the back of the high court in Auckland as a senior police officer cleared a path and a small convoy of two police cars and the enclosed prisoner's truck swept into the driveway at quite high speed. TV crews, reporters and photographers flung themselves into their pre-selected vantage points up trees and over walls. As the police slammed, the iron gates shut behind the convoy. The cameras poked down into the small yard and amid cries of, I was here first, photographers threw themselves to the ground to try and poke their lenses under the gates to see if they could get shots of the French couple around. Arriving. i don 't think they were
2: successful so any contrition from the French government Well, um, it took a long time, you know, and of course, they had to pay a compens- well they did pay a compensation with a lot of uh, uh, strong negotiation that went on for both uh, new zealand government and uh, and also uh, Greenpeace. but justice was never really served with the case, for example, that originally both uh, Mafar and Prio were charged with uh, murder and arson and so on. And then with the extraordinary scenes that uh, we've just uh, heard at at court, uh, basically they uh, pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. And, of course, uh, they were sentenced to 10 years and seven years for the uh, damage to the Greenpeace itself. But this is where this is a terrible um, result of um, this uh, lack of justice in a sense that the 10 years were never served both Mafar and Prueh uh, was part, part of the negotiations that went on with the French government. Uh, f- basically, France had New Zealand over a barrel over trade and the European Union and so on. So uh, compromises were, were done. And so eventually Maffa and Prue were handed over to France uh, for three years, uh, essentially house arrest on how Atoll, which was the rear base of the French uh, nuclear operations in uh, Polynesia, many would describe so ha- so it as So hang the... on,
0: so France sends 13 agents to New Zealand to commit an act of terrorism on New Zealand soil. We catch two of the 13, sentence them to 10 years in jail and then France blackmails us with uh, trade as a as a bargaining bargain. Exactly, chip it.
2: blackmail. So, in order well, to get to put these agents way. back to, yes. to
0: France, and so, where they it, spent three years on an island.
2: Well, they didn't even spend three years there. I mean, anybody would describe it as um, like a military club uh, med. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they didn't spend three years there. There are excuses found. Uh, for example, Mufar, um, they um, created a false identity and uh, smuggled them out of um, Tahiti back to France. Um, and Pierre Became pregnant and she went back to France, so well within their three year periods they're supposed to serve. And then, of course, they um, both wrote books, um, you know, as lauding their um, achievements, so called achievements, you know. It's outrageous, really.
0: Here's Greenpeace Captain Peter Wilcox describing how it feels even now, many years later, about the French government's response to their protest. Uh, and he sums it up pretty succinctly, probably how many people felt about the revelation. This is him talking to TVNZ's Sunday program in 2016.
1: So completely shocked. I mean, how could we, a bunch of hippies on an old steel trawler, scare a superpower so much they would set out to murder us? What possibly could we have done? We were speaking truth to power. That was about it. Is that really what scared them so badly?
0: Do you remember how you felt at the time?
2: Angry, um, upset, um, and uh, deeply shocked, actually. Um, As a journalist working in the Pacific, I put it in the context of what was already happening in the Pacific, where uh, France, during the 80s, had been responsible for repression in New Caledonia, uh, French Polynesia, Tahiti, and there'd been assassinations by uh, military forces and so on of uh, independence leaders like uh, Ilo Moshiro and so on. So when you put it all in a wider context of geopolitics and France's interests in the region, uh, you start to understand. Because if you just look at the Rainbow Warrior alone, you think, how crazy? How, how could a nation do that, you know, uh, uh, against one of its friends? <laughs> but when you see it, you know, it was a part of a pattern at the time.
0: Jean-Luc Kister was the name of uh, one of the agents who actually planted the bomb. And he did an interview also with TVNZ's Sunday programme about their mission. And he talks in this clip uh, about it was how it was never their intention to harm anybody. Listen to this.
2: We were not cold bloodied killers. We did everything to preserve the life of the people on board of the Rainbow Warrior. Do you believe that? No, I don't believe it for a moment. Now I have to say, I lived in France for many years, and I love France, and I worked for a French news agency and so on. But it's a wonderful country, but in terms of politics in the South Pacific and how it uh, treated New Zealand at that time, we're just simply abhorrent. I think it was quite extraordinary, though, that that statement was made by, by Kister. You know, he was he was saying it for form, really, but it is extraordinary that a military officer of his background and so on, would even come out uh, publicly and speak about it. So, mm. so I, I, I guess we can give him a little bit of benefit of the doubt that it must have played on his uh, conscience uh, over the years. I hope it did.
0: So what's been the long-lasting impact of the bombing uh, here in New Zealand?
2: Well, I think, I think it was a baptism of fire, um, we, a loss of innocence when that happened, and in the context that we had stood up as a small nation... On being nuclear free, something we should have been absolutely proud of, which we were, of all those who um, basically campaigned for that at the time. And I think that that really established um, our independence, if you like, as a small nation. And I think we have a lot to contribute to the world in terms of uh, peacemaking and so on. And we shouldn't lose a crack of that, that the courage that was shown by this country standing up to a major nuclear power and all those others that uh, wouldn't um, actually come out and challenge and question it. You know, we should follow through on that uh, sort of independence of thought we should be a leader in terms of uh, peace and uh, nuclear-free um, throughout the world because we now have a, a period where, the, during the Cold War period with the United States and uh, Soviet uh, conflict, we're now replacing that with uh, US and uh, China. And uh, so, once again, there is that growing risk of uh, a nuclear war.
0: The Rainbow Warrior itself is now off Matauri Bay in Northland as a diving attraction. Is that a fitting resting place, do you
2: think? There's a lot of controversy about the, t- the time, but ultimately as I see it as very much a contribution to the environment and uh, certainly much better than just a memorial or something like that, you know.
0: Lovely to have you in. Thanks for sharing your insights. Um, we're going to finish with a clip from a documentary that you made and it features music composed by a string band in Vanuatu. Um, do you know the piece? Yes, great. OK, it's called <laughs> no, no More, more Bombs. bombs. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jesse. David Roby, thanks so much. <laughs> no more
1: bones, no more done
0: You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can find more episodes on the RNZ website or we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or wherever you find your podcasts. And once you've finished binging this series, you might like to try Untold Pacific History or the New Zealand Wars series for your regular history fix. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues